Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Nihongo Master Podcast. I'm your host Azra, coming to you as an ambassador for the royal family of Japan. Because today, we're going to be chatting about the lives and times of the emperors. If you paid any attention to the coronation ceremony for the latest emperor in 2019, you'll know that the royals are still a pretty big deal here. But is everyone in love with the idea of living under an emperor? Or do some Japanese people find the whole system a little outdated? That's what we'll be trying to find out today. And to do so, we'll be shining the spotlight on one of the most influential families on earth, the Yamato dynasty. The imperial monarchy of Japan is the oldest royal dynasty anywhere in the world. We know for sure that this same family have been in power, in one form or another, for at least 1,500 years. Although, if Japanese legend is to be believed, that number is closer to 2,650 years. That means that a single family's lineup of emperors is longer than a lot of people's Instagram followers list. So there's no way you'll ever be able to remember them all. But that's okay. If you want to understand how the Japanese people relate to their imperial family, you only have to look at a select few, a greatest hits of some of the most influential royals ever to sit on the chrysanthemum throne. Along the way, I'll be dropping in some useful vocab related to all things royal. If you're into watching historical dramas, you'll really want to get your vocab books ready. Although if not, don't worry, pretty much everything we'll cover is still very relevant in the modern day too. So let's get started. First, we're going all the way back to the beginning. And I mean, the beginning. Because the first story of Japan's very first emperor, Emperor Jimu, is linked to the Shinto myths about the creation of the world itself. All these densetsu, or legends, are collected in Japan's earliest written record, the Kojiki, which was written in 712 AD. Now, I should tell you that the Kojiki isn't exactly the most reliable source out there. It features journeys to the underworld, enchanted swords, and the three-legged crows sent by a god to help the heroes. It's much more Dungeons and Dragons than your average high school history textbook. Despite that, there might well be some kernel of facts mixed up in all that magical mythology. If you take the book at its word, if you take the book at its word, then the story goes a little something like this. Jimu, the very first Yamato dynasty emperor, reigned for an impressive 75 years, from 660 to 585 BC. The Japanese word for emperor is Tenno, so we can refer to him as Jimmu Tenno. But before winning that title, he started his royal career in his hometown of Takachiho, in modern day Miyazaki Prefecture. Of course, if he had just settled down there for good and enjoyed a life of luxury, we wouldn't be calling him an emperor. So he did what all emperors do he started conquering kingdoms. The first five or six years of Jimmu san's career were spent moving north up the country from his starting place on Kyushu. Conquering tribesmen and petty kingdoms throughout modern day Fukuoka, Hiroshima, Okayama, and beyond. While moving through modern day Osaka, he eventually met his match in a local warlord who served the rule of Nara, which was called Yamato at the time, and had to back off to lick his wounds. As he geared up to take another run at Yamato from the opposite side of the kingdom, he lost his brother to an arrow injury from the previous battle. Now, so far it all sounds pretty believable, right? Battles, marching, castles, yeah, yeah. But here's where it starts to get weird. You see, old Jim wasn't just any old Tenno. 
he was the grandson of the sun, the actual sun. Yep, it's said that the Japanese royal family can actually trace their lineage back to Amaterasu, the goddess of the sun, who supposedly painted the landscape of Japan into existence with the help of her two siblings. If you listened to our previous episodes, you'll know that Japanese gods are known as kami, but there's a special name for these OG deities, Amatsukami. Go back just a little further down the line to Amaterasu's grandfather and you have the creator of the universe himself. That means the current emperor's ancestor is the god himself. I know that posh nobles have some pretty inflated egos, but even then, that seems a bit excessive. Anyway, for Jimu, it meant he didn't just have to lay down and accept defeat like some stupid commoner. While he was making camp with his people, his godly grandma sent a mist that put a lot of them to sleep. Then she sent a vision to one of his advisors, which showed a magical sword hidden nearby, presumably giving plus 5 stamina and poison resistance. Bringing the sword to Jim woke the whole army up again, and they continued on their way. But the eastern approach to ancient Nara was pretty tricky to navigate, so the sun goddess sent a guide to help, a three-legged crow called Yatagarasu. The Japanese word for crow is karasu, and this one basically translates to giant crow. With a magical sword and a talking animal companion, Japan's totally not fictional first emperor managed to defeat the warlord and conquer Yamato, where he formally established a dynasty which still shares the land's name and lived to the ripe old age of Hyakunijuroku, 126. If that all sounds like a lot of fairy tales to you, then congratulations, you haven't completely lost your mind. And you might rightly be wondering, do the Japanese people themselves genuinely believe in these myths? Well, the answer to that is pretty much a hard no. The Jimu myth plays a noteworthy part in Shinto tradition, but in modern Japan, you'd struggle to find anyone who takes them literally, besides maybe some hardline nationalist groups. But those guys are another topic altogether. Nowadays, it's widely accepted that these stories were written as remixes and adaptations of other myths and actual historical events, which were used to legitimize and stabilize the rule of the emperor in centuries past. See, if you're an ancient emperor, there's always someone who's looking to take your place. Japan has hundreds of competing clans who jostled for power. You might have seen some of the emblems of the more famous and powerful clans plastered on sightseeing spots around Japan. These emblems are known as Mon, and they work much in the same ways as European family crests. They can feature anything from animals to weapons, but the most famous one is the Yamato Dynasty Mon, which shows a chrysanthemum, or Kiku, in Japanese. Anyway, as well as listing all of Jimu's descendants up until the ruling emperor of the day, the Kojiki also gives lip service to some of the other major clans which were powerful back then, and set them up with some godly ancestors of their own. If it's not clear enough already, I'm saying that it was basically a way for wealthy posh folk to massage their giant egos I mentioned before. Surprise, surprise. Now, on to our vocab recap for Emperor Jimu. Densetsu. Legend. Tenno. Emperor. Used by itself or as a title for an individual. For example, Showa Tenno. Amatsukami the original heavenly gods in Japanese Shinto, who are a step above the gods of the earth. Karasu, crow. Mon, a Japanese family clan emblem. 
Kiku, chrysanthemum, the national flower of Japan and symbol of the emperor. Now for something completely different. We're going to jump forward around a thousand years to 593 AD for a healthy dose of girl power. If you pay any attention to Japanese news, you might think that there's no way Japan could possibly have ever had a ruling empress. Isn't it prohibited? Well, that legal ban is actually a pretty recent development. Throughout history, Japan has actually had eight different empresses sitting on its throne. The longest reigning of them all was also the very first, Empress Suiko. As the 33rd head of the dynasty, she was the ruler of Japan for a full 35 years, from 593 to 628 AD. The years leading to her reign were a pretty rough time for Nippon, with the death of three empress in just seven years. Suiko had started out as just another daughter of the 29th emperor, Kinmei, who was the first emperor that historians can actually verify the dates and details for, before going on to marry his successor, making her the Kogo, a word meaning empress, but only as wife to the actual ruler. After the death of the 30th emperor, her husband and uh, half-brother, then the 31st emperor, her full brother, and then the 32nd emperor, another full brother, who was assassinated by his own backers as part of a power dispute, the empress had to step in to stop all of the stupid boys from bickering over who came next. Genuinely, that was basically the reason for it. Two clans, the Mononobes and Sogas, had fought a war over the last emperor, and it looked like they would be going at it again unless a neutral leader could step up to quieten things down. So that's exactly why Empress Suiko was chosen to take on the proper title of Empress, which is the same as for Empress, Tenno, making her Suiko Tenno. The head of the clan is called Daimyo in Japanese, by the way. As it turns out, women are pretty good at leadership when given the chance. Who knew? Together with her nephew, the crown prince, they spread Buddhism, known as Bukkyo, throughout Japan, established diplomacy with China, and brought a lot of Chinese innovations to the country, including the calendar and political system. Even though Empress Suiko landed the gig through some pretty unconventional circumstances, it sounds like a win for women in Japan overall, right? So why is it that I've heard women are banned from becoming empress nowadays? Well, as it turns out, the throne room of the imperial palace was only made into a boys-only club in 1889 as part of new royal rules to go along with Japan's shiny new constitution. The politicians of the day wanted to make Japan a more modern country, and that meant taking some powers away from women, of course. So they modelled the new rules on Prussia's strictly male-dominated monarchy and call it a day. But in recent years, these regulations have been causing a huge headache for the royalists of Japan. In 2004, the Prime Minister gathered a group of legal experts to take a look into the laws and how they could be amended. That's because not a single son, or musuko, had been born in the royal family for 40 years, so they would be facing a legal crisis relatively soon if nothing was done. But before they could drag Japan's royal regulations out of the 19th century, one of the highest-ranking princesses fell pregnant with a boy, and all the people who were terrified of maybe having a woman on the throne one day breathed a sigh of relief. Nowadays, though, people are starting to have the same concerns. The current emperor only has a daughter, or musume, meaning the politicians are scrambling to debate the issue all over again. The public seem pretty well in favour of it. In fact, 
over 80% of Japanese people support having an empress on the throne, according to a Kyodo news survey. But, unfortunately, we'll have to wait to see what happens. This time, the talks weren't derailed by a baby on the way, but by the COVID pandemic which has us all working from home and sterilizing our hands every five seconds. Who knows, maybe after it's all over, we'll see a change to the laws and Princess Toshi will go on to become the ninth empress of Japan. Okay, here's our vocab recap. Kogo, the wife of the emperor, which technically means empress but not in the same sense as an actual ruling tenno. Bukyo, Buddhism. If you want to refer to followers of Buddhism, they're called Bukkyoto, Daimyo, a feudal lord and head of a family clan in old Japan. Musuko, son. Musume, daughter. For our next Nihonjin royal, we're going to jump way forward down the line of succession to the 122nd head of the Yamatos. This brings us all the way to 1868, when one Prince Mutsuhito inherited the throne after the death of his father the year before, and with it took the name Emperor Meiji. This was the start of probably the most important part of Japanese history, the Meiji era. If you've ever been to Japan before, you'll know that it's not all kimonos and pagodas. This is a thoroughly modern country with a lot of international influences. After visiting a centuries old shrine, you can go grab a hamburger. And after a long hard day at work, you can slip out of your business suit and into a traditional yukata rope for a dip in an onsen. This mix of the familiar and uniquely Japanese is part of what makes Japan such an easy place to travel in. And for that, the first person we have to thank is Emperor Meiji. See, before the Meiji era, Japan was pretty much completely closed off to the outside world. But seeing how the rest of the world was racing ahead of them, some influential daimyo of the day decided it was time to leave the old feudalist ways behind. To do so, they had to get rid of the shogun, the military leader of Japan, who actually had more power than the emperor himself. From 1868 to 1869, supporters of the emperor and shogun fought each other in the Boshin War. Of course, you haven't seen any 21st century shoguns parading around on the news recently, so you already know who won. With his full power restored for the first time in almost 700 years, the emperor went about giving his country a total makeover. Meiji san started wearing a European style suit, ate meat regularly, something which was restricted under Buddhist laws for centuries, and invested heavily in bringing Western innovations onto the streets of Japan. This meant trains on the avenues and railways connecting the cities, flushing toilets and modern sewage systems, street lights and paved roads. Newspapers and the Gregorian calendar, and universities, Daigaku, to educate the public. This was also when the craze for Western style food, known in Japan as yoshoku, really took off. If you were born in Japan at the start of this era, by the time you were 40, it seemed like you were living on another planet entirely. Now, all that sounds great. Who doesn't love trams and toilets? But there was a darker side to all this modernization. Because at the same time, Japan was upgrading its military with lots and lots of deadly new tools. In fact, some of the samurai who helped put the Meiji Emperor on the throne found themselves at the wrong end of his new guns during the Satsuma Rebellion in 1877, as they felt shortchanged by the fact that they'd lost nearly all of the privileges they once enjoyed. After putting down the angry samurai, Meiji san went on a bit of a rampage of wars, or senso, 
around Asia, conquering Korea, parts of China, Taiwan, and part of Russia. What's more, the government also fought a political war against Buddhism and promoted Japan's native Shinto religion instead. And for the first time ever, they started promoting the idea that the emperor himself was the literal Shinto god. Now, as we spoke about already, there was always a connection between the monarchy and the Shinto gods, but nobody ever really worshipped the emperor directly. That all changed in the Meiji era, and the government even started mailing out pictures of the emperor for people to worship in their homes. Things kind of went a bit crazy, and Japanese nationalism was at an all-time high. About 30 years after Emperor Meiji's 1912 death, all of this mad propaganda would eventually lead to, well, you probably don't need me to tell you what Japan was up to in the first half of 1940s. I'll keep it light. But it is pretty important to understand all of this if you ever want to properly understand modern Japan. I mean, even nowadays it is still pretty nationalist in a lot of ways, and even still a slightly closed-off place. Some older or more conservative Japanese people are still suspicious of foreigners, colloquially known as gaijin, especially the idea of them settling down here permanently. Oh, and remember the wars with Korea and China I mentioned? Those wounds are still pretty damn raw. You'll find a lot of ill feeling going both ways between the people of Japan and these countries. It's probably most obvious on the far right of Japanese politics. Remember those hardline nationalists I mentioned before? Well, let's have a brief chat about them, just so you know what they're all about. They're also known as Uyoku Dantai, which literally means right-wing groups. And they're all about preserving Japanese culture, bigging up the emperor and hating on outsiders. They're generally very anti-China and anti-Korea, and look back at Japan's imperial heyday as a golden age. You might even hear them driving around the place in their trademark vehicles, Cars and trucks fitted with loudspeakers which blare out imperial anthems and propaganda. Even when they're not annoying people with their obnoxious tunes, you'll be able to recognize their cars from the imperial flags and chrysanthemum seals plastered on the sides. They're easiest to spot out and about on Japan's National Foundation Day on February 11th, called Kenkoku Kinen no Hi in Japanese, which commemorates the day our mythical pal Jimmu supposedly founded the country. Now, you're presumably not Japanese if you're listening to a Japanese language and culture podcast. So all of that talk of anti-foreigner nationalists might sound a little scary. But don't go cancelling your vacation. These people are just noisy fringe groups with a total membership of only around 100,000. For comparison, the Japanese population is 126.5 million. And almost all of them are extremely happy to welcome foreigners with open arms. Now let's get into our vocab recap. Daigaku. University, for example. Kyoto Daigaku. Yoshoku. Western-style food. Senso. War. So you can combine this with other words to name specific wars. For example, Vietnam Senso. Vietnam War. Gaijin. A slang term for foreigner, which is short for the more polite term, Gaikokujin. The first kanji in the word gai means outside and generally denotes foreign things like gaika, foreign currency, and gaisha, foreign cars. Uyoku dantai, right-wing groups. We can also just use the adjective uyoku by itself to mean right-wing. The opposite is sayoku, left-wing. Kenkoku kinen no hi, 
National Foundation Day on February 11th. Okay, last up, we'll just have one more royal to talk about. And the final emperor we'll be talking about today is, naturally, the current one. Although not quite as famous as his long-reigning counterpart in the UK, I'll bet at least a few of you know his name, Emperor Naruhito. Since Japanese monarchs traditionally take a new name to match the new era they ring in, he's now technically named Emperor Reiwa. As you might have already worked out, each Japanese era, or Jidai, starts and ends with the reign of an emperor. And Naruhito has only been on the throne since 2019 when his father abdicated. That means in traditional Japanese dates, you wouldn't call this year 2020. It's Reiwa 2, because that's the era we're living in now. Well, if you're listening from outside of Japan, you're technically not living in Reiwa era. It'd be weird if you started filling out forms like that. But on some official Japanese documents, at the Ginko, that's bank, for example, you might see the year written in the era plus number format, so don't be confused. And you might well be wondering, who chooses the name for the era? I mean, Naruhito sounds nothing like Reiwa, so did he choose it himself or what? Well, actually, there is a whole very traditional process which goes into choosing a new era's name. When it became time to crown the new emperor, a special committee of language and literature experts convened to discuss which kanji should be used. If you're familiar with kanji, you'll know that there is a core stock of a few thousand which every Japanese person knows and uses. But on top of that, you'll find ancient texts and bumper dictionaries packed with up to 50,000. Don't worry though. You won't even have to scratch the surface of that to pass your basic JLPT. Eventually, the committee settled on two obscure kanji taken from ancient Japanese poetry. Rei, representing beauty, and wa, meaning harmony. Although, they can be interpreted in various ways. The name of the era is no small thing in Japanese culture. People were eagerly awaiting the announcement, and it was the news on everyone's lips when the government revealed it on TV. Emperor Reiwa's enthronement ceremony was quite a big deal too. It took place in October 2019, about half a year after he took up the position, and representatives from pretty much every country on earth joined. The area around Tokyo's imperial palace, known in Japanese as the Kokyo, was also packed with royalists and tourists looking to absorb a little history in the making. If those crowds were any indication, it seems like the Japanese royal family is still doing pretty well. I mean, the English and Americans go mad for a UK royal kekkonshiki, that's wedding, and the younger generations of that particular royal family have a pretty good reputation. But is the same true nowadays in Japan? Well, yes and no. Naruhito and his wife, Kogo Masako, enjoy a pretty decent amount of admiration. Kyodo News put the figure somewhere around 75% meaning about three-quarters of the country have a generally favourable opinion, or better. There's a lot to like about them after all. They're charitable, gentle, a little boring maybe. But even at that, there's still a sense among a lot of Japanese people that, well, they don't really matter. I mean, a lot of Brits say the same thing about their royals. Since they don't get involved in politics, they're basically just symbolic. That's even more true in Japan. Remember when I briefly talked about how the Japanese were encouraged to literally worship the emperor in the lead-up to the war? Well, after it was all over, the Americans decided that idea had to go if they were ever going to move forward. 
The new Japanese constitution, called the Sengo Kenpo, stated that the new emperor was totally banned from participating in politics, and they even had the then emperor go on the radio and announce, Hey guys, by the way, I'm not actually a god, okay? So nowadays, the Japanese royal family stay way away from all of that. The emperor is even less politically powerful now than in the days of the shogun. However, he is still the head of the Shinto religion. But all of those rituals take place behind closed doors to avoid emboldening those megaphone-wielding nutjobs we spoke about a few minutes ago. At any rate, Naruhito is a pretty popular emperor compared to his father, even though his Riwa era isn't shaping up to be the best of times. Maybe if he can modernize the royal family's image with a female heir, or some other 21st century revamp, he'll win over the other 25%. Or... Maybe he's a relic from a bygone age who needs to be ousted entirely. I'll leave that one up to you. On to our last vocab recap. Jidai, era, for example. Meiji jidai. Ginko, bank. Kokyo, the imperial palace in Tokyo. The word literally means imperial residence. Kekkonshiki, wedding. If you want the verb for to get married, it uses the same first part of the word, kekkonsuru. Kenpo, constitution. This goes for all countries' constitutions around the world. For example, the most famous is of course the Beikoku Kenpo, the US constitution. And that's all for today. Four very different emperors and empresses who reveal four very different facets of Japanese culture and society. I'd say that understanding the lives and times of these four rulers is pretty key to understanding modern Japan and how it came to be. It's a place of ancient myths which still affect and enrich daily life. A place where women can often be relegated to the sidelines. A place where national identity has a sometimes ambivalent relationship with the outside world. And where, despite all that, a vast majority of the people continue to update their attitudes to fit with the modern times, while still hold on to their unique traditions and heritage. I hope you were able to add some jewels of vocab to your Nihongo crown along the way. And if you're interested in picking up some more Japanese for yourself, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and the official website to learn more about our innovative online learning system. Thank you so much for listening in. I hope you'll join me next time as well, where we'll be diving into another part of Japan's unique culture. Mata ne!